This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. episode, let's dive deep into the finer details of mobility and the vast benefits it has on patients and their outcomes. Expert physical therapists join us to share their journeys to be able to practice at the top of their license in the ICU and what that means for patients during critical illness. We have Kyle and Kenny with us. Do you mind introducing yourselves? Kenny, would you go first? Sure. Uh, my name is Kenny. I'm a physical therapist. I work in a 20-bed MICU in New York City, so it's been a, a very interesting few years. Graduated from Northeastern University in 2014, so starting to feel a little old, but... Seasoned, seasoned. Seasoned, yeah, that's a nice way to call it. Not as old as Kyle, though. <laughs> and Kyle, will you tell us about yourself? Uh, sure, my name is Kyle Ridgway. I'm a physical therapy clinical specialist at University of Colorado Hospital and then do a little work with the physical therapy program in the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I went to physical therapy school here at the University of Colorado on its medical campus. My undergraduate work was actually in neuroscience. And I kind of came to this space in an interesting way. When I was in physical therapy school, I vowed to never step foot in a hospital and did not, I was deathly afraid of them. And now I've spent kind of the last 13 years of my life being kind of obsessed with critical and acute care, physical therapy and rehabilitation. So, you know, you can get here in a lot of different ways. And you have been such a powerful voice on Twitter advocating for physical therapy's role and place in the ICU. And I'm so excited to have both of you here coming from different specialties of ICU and different cultures within ICU teams. I am excited to hear some very specific expertise from you guys. Throughout the podcast, we talk a lot about getting physical therapy in promptly. And I want to dive deeper into why exactly what you have to offer the ICU team and how you drastically improve and change outcomes. I think habitually, sometimes the role of the physical therapist has been to do passive range of motion. And I think that comes from culturally a misunderstanding of what each level of mobility does during critical illness. So do you guys mind breaking it down for us, each level, level of mobility and how that impacts patient outcomes and what we're working and engaging during each level. Sure. I mean, I think I'll, I'll talk broadly about what I think the role of a physical therapist is in an ICU and then let Kyle get into the, the granular aspects of, you know, positioning levels of mobility and things like that. Cause I know it's something he's very uh, passionate about and philosophical about, but overall, I think <clears throat> when we look at, um, the A to F bundle and, you know, quality improvement projects that have gone on in literature that's been published on this. The uptake of it is it's difficult. The point prevalence is pretty low. The actual implementation of it is difficult. When we think about 
early mobility and the role of a physical therapist, it's arguably the most interdependent aspect of it, right? Because if someone is deeply sedated, they're delirious, they're essentially in a medically induced coma, there's probably not a whole lot we can offer them that's that's valuable. You can you can do passive range of motion and things like that, but you know, the question is, does that actually impact outcomes that hospitals are interested in from a financial and administrative standpoint? Does it impact uh, patient-centered outcomes in terms of quality of life, disability, dyspnea, pain, strength, et cetera? And I think that can be argued that it might not. So I think what physical therapists offer in an ICU is they're kind of uh, positive antagonists for really meticulous supportive care, very judicious use of analgesia and sedation, highlighting the, the presence of delirium and how to manage that in a maybe a non-pharmacological way. I know we can sometimes be very quick to go for the Haldol pushes and restraints and things like that. So I think uh, bigger picture, what physical therapists offer is trying to facilitate that meticulous supportive care, because without that, you're not going to be getting the patient on a ventilator up. You're not going to be having them walk in the, the hallway. You're not going to have that person on ECMO or CRT out of bed to chair if all of that other stuff is not already in place and laid down as a foundation. And you bring in such a unique expertise to the bedside, understanding the neuromuscular system and how that plays into survival. Yet you need the rest of the team to understand what you bring in order for them to open the doors to allow you to come do your job. So Kyle, what do you bring to the table? Like practically, why, how, I mean, Kenny mentioned making nurses jobs easier by helping with delirium, decreasing the need for sedation, helping get patients out of the ICU sooner, things like that. Why do your interventions work towards those goals? And that's a great question. And I think it's something that I've been pondering for close to a decade now. And if you, depending on the day that you get me, my answer might be a little bit different. But I think generally speaking to Kenny's point, a thing that I brought up before is, you know, we can't rehab a minus four. So kind of there's this, there's this barrier of entry into rehabilitation. And generally speaking, what the physical therapist does is, and this is idealistic, of course, is becomes a part of the multidisciplinary team to ensure that our view of a patient's organ systems and failure is not limited from the neck to the abdomen, right? That we, we get, and this includes our other therapy disciplines, our speech language pathologists, our occupational therapists, our physiatry colleagues as well, is really looking head to toe and across systems of a patient and saying, wait a second here, we need to be concerned about the impact of critical care and critical illness on the neuromuscular system, on the cognitive system. And then more globally speaking, outside of the body system assessment is their current and future functional state, cognitively and physically, their ability to return back to the community, to work, to take on their social roles. And I think for listeners who want to do a deep dive on this, you know, in rehabilitation, we have this construct called the ICF model, the International Classification of Function and Disability. And it's a little bit of a flip if you're used to kind of the systems-based, organ-based model 
of viewing a person because it takes into account activities, social roles, the environment. And I think foundationally, philosophically, that's what a, that's what a physical therapist or a rehab professional brings to the table. But specifically, as Kenny had mentioned, I think the power is, is that physical therapists are always, in order to do their job, to be able to assess a patient, to be able to treat them, to be able to progress them, we're kind of, as Kenny said, we're positive antagonists. We're kind of like annoying, but annoying in a way that helps drive care forward. And I'm fairly convinced that the integration of therapists into critical care, if they are practicing at a high level and good multidisciplinary team members, much of their power is actually nudging people and being annoying enough that we do all the right things for patients and we don't have too short of sight on the patient. Therapists are inherently longer term thinkers because it's like, okay, where is the patient now? Where did they come from and where are they trying to go to? And that lens brings a different flavor to the critical care environment, which is rightfully so very in this moment, in this second, what needs to be done, what's good, what's not, how do we change the dose to approach things? And so I think that's really where a lot of the power of physical therapy in critical care comes from. But if we dive into kind of what happens at the bedside, I like to break out the concept of positioning, like what position is the patient in or statically maintaining versus active mobility and how they may have gotten to that position. And so, you know, if you see a patient up in a chair, that's great. That's a good thing, right? You got a mechanically ventilated, critically ill patient up in a chair. There's not a lot of people out there who's going to say that wasn't a success. But to induce a former guest that you had on Heidi Ingle, Heidi Ingle is obsessed with get a body against gravity and get weight bearing, right? So was that Kenny and I going in there and deadlifting and forklifting that patient over to the chair where they contributed nothing to that? Or did that patient just walk 250 feet around the unit and now they're sitting in the chair, right? End result and position, completely the same to analysis, but the patient's participation actively, what they did is completely different. So I just like to break those things apart is that there's the active mobility a patient performs, the highest level of mobility that they may attain, depending on the scale or way you want to measure that, and then the position that they may be in. And all those things are highly, highly important. But I think there's something to be said for each level of mobility. And I look at it like a staircase. We all go through a mobility staircase every single day, going from supine to rolling to sitting at the edge of the bed, standing, walking to your bathroom, getting dressed, going to work, going up and down stairs. Well, our critically ill patients may progress through those steps of mobility and performance of mobility at different speeds, or they may get stuck at certain levels of mobility. And we really need to look at those playing fields as opportunities to ask, why is the person stuck at this level of mobility? And what can we do, not just as rehab professionals, but as an interdisciplinary team, to help get them either to the next level of mobility successfully or address either impairments or contributions to their, you know, not being able to get past a certain state. So, I mean, the easy example um, is the patient who's stuck in bed. They haven't even mobilized to the edge of the bed. Well, is that a physiologic problem, right? I mean, I can understandably agree that the patient who's on a FIO2 of 100% and a PEEP of 47 probably doesn't need to mobilize to the edge of the bed right this second, but maybe it's a sedation issue. You know, if I think of that RAS of minus four, if the patient is physiologically stable but hasn't been awoken, well, we need to address that so that we can get to this next level of mobility. 
but then there's all the neuromuscular cognitive sequelae that may contribute to their inability to progress as well. So I'll pause there for a sec because I know we do want to jump into some specific impacts on respiratory physiology or respiratory benefits of mobility, but just see if you or Kenny have reactions or want to sharpen that up. No, I love where you're headed. I, I just am thinking of a lot of responses that I've gotten have been, we can't do early mobility because we don't have enough lifts. And my response, at least coming from an MSICU, COVID ICU is, if you do it early, if you do it right, you don't need all the lifts. Um, if we do it promptly and we do act, actual active mobility, patients should maintain the function to be able to get themselves out of bed. And like you said, do a lap around the unit and then sit in a chair. So I, I really appreciate that, that definition. I think getting into a chair is a really good initial step, but that shouldn't be our ultimate goal, which I think needs to change in some of our definitions of early mobility. Yeah, and I mean, I think you can get as, as granular as you want with it in terms of Kyle's example of, you know, are they not getting to the edge of the bed because they're sedated, right? Like, I think physical therapists can offer a unique perspective to a patient's physiology, their pathophysiology. I think Kyle and I joke about patients failing the PT test, right? So someone's, you know, AFib, RVR is well controlled at rest. And then all of a sudden you sit them at the edge of the bed and their rates in, you know, the 160s and the PA has to come in and maybe adjust their amio drip and, and things like that. I think you can get some interesting, maybe prognostic information from how people are, are performing during some of this stuff. You know, a patient who gets up and, and maybe walks or gets out of bed to chair and their, their map's above 65 the whole time, their blood pressure's solid, their respiratory rate's good, they don't desaturate anything like that. And then the next day you're like, oh, you know, they, they kind of dipped down into the mid eighties there. And we had to, we had to bump up their FIO two. They got, they got pretty hypotensive. I think that offers a lot of valuable information to our, our ICU team members, because it gives a picture of how that patient's physiology is tolerating demand, demands that mimic real life activities, demands that mimic what the patient's going to be doing on the floors because sometimes they look really great in the bed and they might go to the step down unit or they might go to the med surge floor and and all of a sudden you know they go to the commode and they syncopize or their their rate and rhythm gets really terrible so i think we we uncover a lot of things that might be going on beneath the surface there they you don't necessarily get when they are completely supine and, and inert, inactive. And I think something that the rest of the ICU team needs to understand and appreciate is your expertise and your ability to assess patients um, for these changes and for their safety and their stability. I think there needs to be an increased level of trust. I think sometimes nurses are so afraid to mobilize patients on mechanical ventilation and all they've really seen are physical therapists doing passive range, passive range of motion that they don't appreciate their ability to assess whether or not a patient is physiologically stable enough to mobilize and that they can assess and keep them safe each step of the process. So instead of blocking the doorway saying, I don't think they should today, why not let the physical therapist go in, assess, give feedback, start initiating mobility and keep assessing. We need to be able to trust each other 
to be able to progress and work towards that. But I think part of that is because we don't understand what we're working towards. We don't understand what you can do, what you're doing and why you're doing it and why it's so important to do so quickly. And so therefore it gets put on the back burner and it has a lot of fear instilled into it. And just, I think a lot of lack of understanding and lack of trust, but I have so much respect for physical therapists. I think you're demonstrating that you are highly knowledgeable, extremely safe to handle patients, even with high acuities, and that you're aware of any changes that happen and you know how to respond and diffuse any kind of changes that could happen during mobility, which those occurrences are less than 1%. But nonetheless, you're qualified to respond to those. And so I think physical therapists should be able to go in and do an assessment and be heard and have a say in whether or not a patient is appropriate to mobilize. Yeah, I think what you're speaking to is probably kind of the ground floor of anything that we do in critical care, which is it's a team sport, which is an easy thing to say. We need to have a multidisciplinary team, which is, you know, a great thing to sit at an administrative table and, you know, come up with an action plan. But when we really get, you know, down into the work is something you mentioned is I think just has to be there. And it's, that's trust. You know, trust is the foundation to high level teamwork. And I think something to explore here that I, I do want to bring up is that I am completely sensitive to a nurse who has either had a bad experience in the past with maybe a physical therapist or maybe just trying to move a sick patient in general or is a little skeptical because they don't have a relationship with this specific physical therapist. And I, I'm completely sensitive and understand that, that, you know, as a bedside nurse, you know, you are the toll gate into the room and you are the protector of that patient. And that is absolutely the role of the nurse. And we should absolutely respect that. And I think the flip side of that is, is that, you know, unfortunately, probably the, the range or the variance in training and skill set of a physical therapist in any given facility, or especially across the country, is so variable that that almost has to be assessed at a, you know, unit to unit, hospital to hospital, you know, around the country situation where, you know, I can see two kind of opposite poles where you take a really expert, acute critical care physical therapist, and you put them with a, you know, a more novice nurse, and the physical therapist is really coaching up, training up that nurse and saying, hey, you know what? I know they're on 70% and a peep of 12, but their ventilator settings have gotten better over the past day. Imaging looks better. Labs are looking good. They're off of their vasopressors. I see their blood pressure is very stable. Ventilator synchrony looks good. Saturations, blood gas looks great. I talked to the team earlier and they do want to do a spontaneous awakening trial today. So why don't I go in there with you and I'll kind of show you what I'm going to assess and we can kind of wake this patient up together. And I'm going to assess their strength and cognition um, in supine. And then if they looks good, we'll sit them to the edge of the bed and see how it goes. So that's an expert physical therapist helping kind of build trust and illustrate and explain and educate in real time. Now, the flip side is also true. And this is, this is how I, back in the day when I was not an expert, was the expert ICU nurse saying, Kyle, don't worry about the systolic of 87. Their map is at goal. I promise you it's okay. Why don't we sit them up? They're strong. You know that they're okay. I'm right here. If we need to titrate their pressors just a little bit, it's all good. Okay. There's no reason that you should not see this new, you know, heart that this case example is a heart transplant. 
that you shouldn't see this heart transplant patient. Like, come in, let me explain this to you. And so depending on the unit, you can kind of have different levels of expertise. And, but, and the only reason I bring that up, and I'm, I'm inducing kind of one of the, the godmothers in our profession, Chris Perm here, is she is very, very stringent about, you know, yes, we have good research to support the feasibility and potential impact of this stuff. We have good kind of program and research that shows that physical therapists can do this. They can do it at a high level. But then the but there is always in a highly trained, supportive, well-functioning team. And so the thing that I um, hear her bring up and the joke I always use is you don't just take a physical therapist and have an army crawl under the curtain into an ICU bed and say, go get some, we'll see what happens. And the reason that I say that is, you know, if you put a, the wrong physical therapist in the wrong unit at the wrong time, that can actually really burn a lot of trust in things. But the flip side of that is, is that sometimes myself, my physical therapy colleagues, we need the training and the support of the expert critical care team to know, hey, you know what? It is safe. And we're right here. What do you think? Let's try this. To let me know what you think. And so that dialogue, that conversation, I think is just vital, vitally important and is really the predicate to anything that we're going to do successfully in critical care. So that's very much off the reservation, but I wanted to, you know, throw that out to the community and, and make sure that we address those important points. Oh, such important points. And I think a lot of that culture is cultivated by knowledge and experience that comes from a nurse understanding that they desperately need physical therapy and physical therapy, understanding that this is an ICU and that there are unstable patients and that they need to collaborate with nurses to know that everyone's comfortable moving forward with that patient. What do you wish nurses or in the rest of the ICU team, physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, RTs, what do you wish they understood about early mobility, the neuromuscular system, especially the muscles role in the respiratory system during critical illness? What will help us fill that desperation for your presence and involvement during critical illness. I think one of the things that I always think about, you know, I'm fortunate in that I'm in a, a small hospital that's a part of a larger academic system. So we get, to, we get to see some interesting stuff, but I also get to know pretty much all of my coworkers, nurses, physicians, PAs on a, a relatively personal level, as opposed to a massive kind of academic hospital where there's a lot of rotations of, of physicians and PAs and nurses and things like that. One of the things that I always you know, think about is that I'm fortunate to be in a role where I get to follow a patient from their ICU stay to their, their floor stay, ultimately to their discharge. And I think what gets lost a lot of times in our ICU colleagues is just how much their ICU stay affects everything that comes after. Because obviously when, when we have this critically ill patient, we're concerned about mortality, right? All of the, the critical care trials, the big outcome is mortality, mortality, mortality. And that's obviously important, right? But we have this idea of, you know, fate's worse than death. And they've looked at stuff like this. I'm thinking of a JAMA internal medicine article that surveyed patients who survived serious illness. And they, they looked at things like bowel and bladder incontinence, can't get out of bed and relying on a feeding tube or a breathing tube and stuff like that. And then 
you know, over half of those, those people surveyed described those certain things as a fate worse than death. And so I think if we were more conscious of what certain things that we do as critical care clinicians that we think are important, you know, keeping people really deeply sedated because it's very uncomfortable to be on a, a ventilator or um, not thinking of delirium as this, this serious acute brain dysfunction, but rather like a, a typical consequence of critical care and like pleasant confusion or hypoactive delirium being described as just someone sleeping. I think if more critical care clinicians who are stuck in the weeds got to see what happens after that patient gets off the ventilator after 30 days where they were on a paralytic for 10 of it and they were deeply sedated and they were prone and they couldn't run tube feeds for a while and they lost 20% of their body mass to see what happens a week after they leave the ICU, 12 months after the ICU, five years after the ICU. And we have good data that these people really suffer. And I think if we had firsthand experience with that, people would maybe be a little bit more conscious, judicious of, of certain things that we, we have reason to believe might help mitigate some of that stuff down the line. Yeah, you have such a unique perspective compared to a lot of the rest of the team that only stays in the ICU. And when you see patients like that, you don't see that they're sleeping. You don't see that they're resting. It sounds like you have a sense of panic. You say, I know what comes after this. If we don't get them up. This could mean days to weeks longer on the ventilator. And this could mean these long-term effects. And I think I agree. If the rest of the team had shared that perspective, there would be a sense of panic and urgency to intervene and prevent that kind of harm. And Kyle, what do you wish they understood about your interventions and how preventable a lot of this harm is? You know, obviously I agree with everything Kenny said. And I think the line that comes to mind is, you know, broaden your perspective and lengthen your time horizon. I mean, the hospital acute care, critical care gets so granularly focused on the here now, the next hour, the next minute, the next day, that we can get sucked into saving the life and forget about the life that we're going to send the patient to. In the next week, when they go to the floor, when they leave the hospital, potentially go to an LTAC or rehab facility, or for our patients who do, who go back home, you know, the data is fairly unequivocal at this point that patients don't do well after critical illness. Physically, cognitively, neuromuscularly, it's not a good situation. This is a, this is a life-changing, life-altering experience, not just acutely, but for months and years after patients leave the ICU. And, you know, obviously, we want to then think about what is the impact of the critical illness not just on their life-stabilizing organ systems, but on their neuromuscular system, their cognitive system, their, psycholo their psychology, and their ability to function cognitively and physically. But then also thinking about our environment and our interventions within critical care and how those may or may not impact those systems and those long-term outcomes as well, right? Because what we can do physiologically is we need to give people the best supportive care and evidence-based interventions to reverse their deranged physiology and critical illness, right? That's what we have to do. But outside of that is we need to do everything we can to ensure that those interventions impart the least amount of harm that they can, because they're gonna impart harm. You put, an, you put an ET tube in someone, you put it in me, in 12 hours, you can biopsy my diaphragm and it's gonna be different, right? You 
put someone deeply sedated and keep them in bed and you look at how the respiratory muscle system works, how their muscles work, it's going to be different. So let's make decisions based upon that. But I think if we look at, and I'll hone on the respiratory system a little bit, is if we take a step back from the respiratory system and we actually look at it from a neuromuscular standpoint, right? The diaphragm is a very, very important respiratory muscle, but then also there are a lot of other trunk muscles that contribute to our respiratory system. Those muscles also work as postural muscles. So they also work to hold us upright against gravity. And I think that's a big important concept in my mind is if we want to attempt to mitigate potential harms that may come from critical illness, and from the treatment of it, and from especially being on mechanical ventilation, we want to try to ensure that we don't lose any more strength than we need to in our respiratory muscle system. So that includes the diaphragm, but that includes our trunk. So therefore, hypothetically, you know, just having a patient sit at the side of the bed and have them hold themselves up against gravity. The first few times you see it from a mechanically ventilated patient, it's a fairly exciting thing, especially if you're in an ICU that hasn't done a lot of this. You do this for some years and you're saying, eh, whatever, we're sitting at the side of the bed. You kind of forget, okay, we are, but we're doing a lot of different things here, neuromuscularly and physiologically that have the potential to be important. You're forcing the patient to at least try to hold themselves up against gravity. You are obviously inherently changing VQ. You are changing where the blood's going and where the air is going. You're potentially helping with atelectasis and secretion mobilization, right? And then cognitively, you're waking this patient up. So just that first step, I think, is an important step to kind of get a gauge of where this patient is at, but is not to be underappreciated as far as what it can potentially do, A, to help the patient along their kind of ventilator liberation, liberation from critical care journey, but also to give you good information to help make decisions to continue to progress them. So if I think of kind of step one of getting that patient up to the side of the bed, there absolutely is value in that, especially when we're thinking about it from an active mobilization perspective, not just seven people twisting someone to the side of the bed, four people behind them holding up, you know, one person holding their head up for them, you know, having the patient actively utilize their neuromuscular system, utilize their cognitive system and try to do something actively. So that's where I would kind of start the assessment or the potential impact there is just right there at the side of that. Absolutely. And when we start promptly, we don't need the seven people to initiate that. It takes maybe two, if, if that. I might have seen physical therapists setting up COVID patients by themselves because they're doing it promptly and the patients are still stable and intact to do so safely. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. 
I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. I, from a nursing perspective, I don't think I really appreciated that, that I wasn't trained to think that way about the respiratory system, about mobility. I worked in ICU for many years and I did those things. I sat them up, I walked them, but I didn't understand in that moment. Okay. I'm decreasing their time on the ventilator, potentially by days. I'm making it so that they can get off the ventilator independently. I, I thought a lot about walking because I know that my mobility my ability to walk is important to me, but even Deeper than that, the ability to breathe is being preserved by just dangling someone initially. That is powerful. And if we understood that, if we saw it that way, if we had that urgency, okay, here we have a COVID patient who has these high risks of having to have for a long time live ventilator because of diaphragm dysfunction, we need to get physical therapy in here and start dangling them and moving them and engaging their respiratory muscles to prevent a tracheostomy and extensive rehabilitation. If we thought about it that way, you wouldn't have to be annoying and pestering the team. They would be begging for you to come work with your, their patients right away. So then how do we move forward after dangling and what benefits do we have after the next step of mobility? So, I mean, everyone's gonna be a little bit different, right? Based off of their prior level of function, their, their critical illness and that kind of stuff. And it's always a response dependent progression. So obviously after dangling at the edge of the bed, do you wanna see, are they able to, to weight bear? Are they able to support themselves in standing? When they do stand and they have that increased orthostatic challenge, are they able to maintain their, their math and their blood pressure? Are they able to tolerate the increased respiratory demands? Are they becoming more desynchronous with the vent because maybe they're on a ventilator mode that doesn't let them control their own flow as much and they're trying to breathe against a closed expiratory valve or they're triggering the vent so often that they're getting this set tidal volume every time where they can't actually exhale. So I think what, what progressing their mobility and their activity does is it kind of, it sets a ceiling for what can happen in those, you know, 23 hours of the day that they're not with a physical therapist, but it also kind of helps combat some of the clinical inertia that can happen with weaning vent settings, weaning sedation, weaning pressors, because I think it's a very powerful thing for providers and, and ICU clinicians and things like that to say, oh, wow, that, that patient was on, you know, 70 and 12, and they're, they're sitting up at the edge of the bed, their SpO2 is 96, their heart rate's perfect, they're pulling good tidal volumes, they're waving to me from the door, you know, maybe we can actually, let's, let's think about taking down their FiO2 and their PEEP today and seeing how they do. Let's, you know, their map was perfect while they were at a bed to chair. Maybe we can come down on the Levo a little bit. I think we, by demonstrating certain things and taxing people's physiology, we can kind of facilitate that, that ICU liberation, that vent liberation and those, those drip liberations. Yeah, when it comes time to extubate a patient that has just walked 200 feet around the unit at least, and they're sitting up in a chair and they're 
right on the board. Can we get the tube out? And there are minimal ventilator settings. There's no finger crossing during that extubation. You know that they're going to be strong enough to cough, protect their airway, and independently breathe. There is a sense of confidence and security after seeing those physical milestones being met. So how do we get to that? How do we go from dangling to to walking, even on a ventilator? Yeah, I'd, I'll just break down kind of, and again, you can track this clinically with different scales. There's the IC mobility scale. There's the Johns Hopkins high level mobility scale. In the research realm, there's a lot of work now on accelerometers to kind of really quantify patients' position and movement. But if I think of the levels of mobility from essentially you're in bed getting Q2 turns, you're in a chair position of the bed, you are sitting at the side of the bed, you are starting to initiate standing, which may include pivoting and getting over to a chair. You're starting to initiate standing and stepping or marching, and then you're now actually ambulating. I think looking at that stepwise progression for every patient helps you, it seems like it more complicates it, but for me, it helps simplify the process, which is you don't just go from laying in the bed to we're on a portable ventilator, we got the wheelchair behind, we're cruising down the hallway. Right? You have to go through all those steps. And each one of those steps is really, in my mind, is just an intersection in, in the road to assess the patient's physical capabilities in that position, their physiologic and cognitive response to that position, and their readiness to attempt the next level of mobility. And really, at each one of those steps of mobility, there are things we can look at, and there are things that we can actually intervene on. And so I'm just going to take a minute and just kind of take you through my general approach to essentially every single patient that I see in a hospital, whether it takes me 32 seconds or 32 minutes. So for me, if I'm walking into a critical care room is step one is what position am I encountering this patient on and what physiology am I encountering? I've talked to the team, I've looked at the chart, but what's their physiology right now? So we look at that picture and we see heart rate blood pressure, respiratory rate, SpO2, all that good stuff. And then I put that into the context of, okay, what am I seeing there in the context of the support that they need? What vasoactives are they potentially on? Is that the dosage that I looked at or talked to the nurse about? And what are what is their respiratory oxygen or ventilator support? I now have a hypothesis of, okay, what looks good? What am I concerned about? Now I can look at the patient in the bed and I can really start to intervene on, let me wake them up. Let me see their cognition and let me test their strength or ability right here in bed. Maybe that's rolling them. Maybe that's asking them to move their limbs against gravity. At each step of the progression, we're doing the exact same thing. Well, the person's harassed minus one. They're unfortunately cam positive, but they're following commands. They respond okay to being awake in my strength testing. Respiratory rate comes up a little bit, but SpO2 is fine. Everything looks good. So we transition to the side of the bed. The process just starts all over. What's their physiology, what's their cognition, and what's their physical capability? Are they holding themselves up on their own? Or am I really having to hold them like a limp noodle? And then I can test again. Does this person have against gravity strength? Are they able to kick their legs, hold their trunk up, lift their arms? Great. Everything looks good here. They're able to kick their legs against gravity. They actually took some resistance. I think we're ready to try standing. We have one person on each side. We just stand from the bedside. And we're not going anywhere right off the bat. We're just standing there. Can the person bear weight? How much physical assistance do they need to do it? What's their physiologic, cognitive, 
and physical response to that. Well, if the person stands for 227 minutes at the bedside, I think we're ready to start trying to march in place a little bit and potentially get over to a chair. And that progression just goes right forward into ambulating. I would say, in my mind, the stuck points happen at kind of those transitions, right? So we're successful kind of at the edge of the bed, but are we ready to get to the chair? We're successful over to the chair and getting into standing. Are we ready to initiate marching, stepping, or even ambulating into the hallway? So my big thing that I always say, especially for folks who maybe are just starting, maybe logistical resources are, especially human resources are a stretch. It's hard to get two or three people to help you is, and I may not make some friends in the rehab world with this, but that's okay, is marching in place is absolutely just as good as walking. And until someone can give me a mechanical physiologic reason that that's not true, I'm doubling down on that statement and I tell it to patients all the time. In fact, and again, this is not data, but just experience, a lot of patients actually tell me that marching seems harder to them than walking. And I can see that. They have to lift your, you have to lift your feet higher. We're oftentimes making you do it at a fast cadence. Now, that's not to undersell the psychological effects for the patient, the family, the team of getting out of the room, of ambulating over ground, those type of things. But if we're thinking in a realistic, pragmatic way, if you're working in a hospital like every other hospital in the country that has staffing shortages, high rates of burnout, tons of COVID, it's hard to deal with. Hey, you got to do the best with what you have. And that may be marching in place. And I want people to know that's success. That is a great intervention. and That's a good thing. But the other reason I bring it up is, is if you're going to take someone on a road trip to do some walking, is it the juice worth the squeeze to, you know, if your institution is like ours, if a patient's transporting out of the room on a ventilator, you need an RT present or someone else present. You probably need a nurse or nurse's assistant to help with IV pulls, monitors, things like that, a wheelchair follow. So let's say it takes two or three people. You're going to have to set that situation up. And you're going to have to break it down on the front and back end of that adventure. Is the juice worth the squeeze if the patient walks 14 steps one time? And that took 45 minutes? Maybe, not saying it's not, but what if you and one other person intermittently helping you could have stood the patient up seven separate times and done five bouts of marching in place for eight to 10 reps? So I kind of use marching as my road test to make decisions on, should we get out of the room? If we are, what's it gonna take? How many people do we need? What type of equipment do we need? But that really working on those repeated sit to stands actually just statically standing and bearing your weight and marching in place, those are the foundations to standing strength and function, to being able to ambulate. And those are things that are really actionable and quick to do. And those are things that can be done outside of therapy. Because in a lot of ICUs, if this is first starting, therapists are really oftentimes can be the drivers of mobility performance. But I can only be in a room, what, 30, 60, maybe 90 minutes a day for a specific patient? It's a lot, a lot of hours outside of therapy. What's actually pragmatic that other team members can perform? And if you have a patient, critical illness or not, ventilator or not, who can get up into a chair, is up into a chair, maybe is working on kind of pre-walking or walking with the therapist, but that's going to be a really tough ask for a nurse or nurse's assistant or a unit any given period of time. That standing from the chair, that doing three sit-to-stands in a row, that standing for a minute, that marching eight steps and then sitting down is a much easier hurdle to clear. And it's absolutely still an effective and important intervention neuromuscularly and physically and functionally. 
And so I, I really think one of the big missed opportunities for kind of increasing mobility or kind of the dosage of mobility we give folks is that standing, stepping, doing a few sit to stand, standing in place, marching in place kind of level to build the foundation for successful and more easeful ambulation, but also to increase the patient's activity and mobility and standing throughout a given day in a way that's pragmatic and is actually actionable and efficient. And it reinforces Christine Perme. She says that mobility is everyone's job, that this is something that everyone can do, I mean, within their own feasibility, right? When you have an extremely weak patient, that's probably not safe for nurses to be independently trying to get up in the middle of the night shift. But if you've been working with a patient and they've stayed functional and able and safe to transfer to the chair themselves, and that is absolutely within a nurse's scope. And the wake and walk in ICU, historically PT does the first two sessions of the day with the patients, with the nurses involved, but the night shift, it just comes down to the RT um, tech and the, R, and the RN to walk. And they'll have these patients walking laps around the halls, just the three of them without physical therapy. But I think it's because these patients become less complex, less unstable because it's so prompt. But that's a question that I've received from some nurses is they're trying to initiate this. They don't have all the support needed and they're not comfortable. And these patients probably aren't safe to throw out of bed with just a nurse, but they want to know, I have a patient dangling at the side of the bed. What can I do to help them keep progressing within my own capacity in that moment? What kind of ideas do you have? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's hard. Every every unit's going to be different, especially now, right? With with COVID and staffing shortages, nurses being at ratios that they're not super comfortable with. So a lot of times, you're just trying to keep your your head above water. And I think the the places that do this successfully are places that integrate it into routine care. So less so thinking of okay, I have to dangle this patient at the edge of the bed. Okay, I have to stand them up. I have to get them out of bed to chair or to the commode. But thinking about, okay, I have to, I have to give my morning meds this morning. Let's, let's sit this patient up at the edge of the bed so they can sit up and bring their pill cup to their, their mouth or you know have to dangle during that to engage those postural muscles that Kyle talked about. And their cognition is challenged because they're having to hold the pill cup and focus on it. Or instead of opting for you know, a passive roll onto a bedpan, let's have this person stand up and bear some weight through their legs and get over to a commode and have to think about sitting up and engaging their trunk and maintaining that postural and head control and then trying to participate in their, their peri care and things like that. I think trying to to find ways to, to integrate whatever small thing it is throughout routine care is really the, the key to success there. Because, you know, like we've mentioned, patients work with a physical therapist for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 90 minutes, whatever it is, but there's a whole lot of other time during the day. And I think I would be, it would be hard to be pressed to tell me that the 15 to 90 minutes that the patient spends with a physical therapist is the, 
driver of that massive magnitude of effect you can see it's it's everything that happens after the fact and sometimes where the you know we open the floodgates for that kind of stuff to happen because we demonstrate that it can be safe that it can be feasible but it's really everything that happens after that's important yeah you guys have said some things that get me thinking if i can react to some of that i think the the first thing, Kenny, that you're highlighting is a multidisciplinary approach to having goal-directed mobility, as well as um, really talking about every moment is a moment to intervene with activity, mobility, positioning, right? And you, and you, you want to integrate this into routine care because I think we have to be sensitive to the fact that you know, every solution, every healthcare problem in any meeting anywhere is we'll just have the nurses insert the blank, right? And they're always asked to do more. They're stressed for time. And you got to make this stuff easy and actionable. And I think, Kenny, you bring up some great illustrations and recommendations that say, let's not just look at this as another to do on the task list of the day. Let's actually infuse this to our, in, into our entire approach to how we care for our patients, whereby Every assessment, every trip into the room is an opportunity to impart some activity or mobility or repositioning or exercise, even if it's for 30 seconds, even if it's for a minute. You know, one of the things that I stole from Chris Perm over the years is having patients do straight leg raises and have them do 100 a day. And the patient's eyes always get a little bit wide, most of them. And I'm like, I've done the math. A patient made me do it. If you're awake for 10 hours, it's 10 an hour. It's one every six minutes. I think you can do it, right? But that's an easy intervention for a nurse or a CNA to integrate every time they go in there. Hey, Mr. Smith, let's knock out five more of those straight leg kicks. I'll spot you on the last few if we need to, right? Now, it's an ideal world. But I think one of the things that was brought up that I think is really important is you have a weak patient or you're not sure if your patient can stand or should stand or can walk. Well, there's two things that we need to talk about or think about for every single patient. And then we want to get to the point where we've operationalized this into our care. And that is, what's this person's potential to mobilize physiologically and physically, right? Physiologically, there's good guidance. We can talk about individual cases. That, that may be the easier one. But then it's like, well, but how strong are they? How weak are they? Can they stand? Should they just sit? Can they stand and pivot? Can they take three steps to the chair, five steps to the commode? Should they walk a mile? I can understand as a non-rehabilitation professional, those are really hard questions. So we need to have some way to talk about their mobility potential and the need for physical assistance, as well as what is a realistic kind of mobility goal for this point in the day, for this shift, for this day. And for some patients, that's absolutely sitting on the side of the bed. For other patients, that's absolutely walking 250 feet. So if you're a nurse or you're a non-rehab provider or someone who's just starting out on this journey, you know, think about that mobility staircase that I brought up and start slow and, and go slow. So do the first step, assess how the patient is doing and responding, and don't be afraid to just do the next little step. Right, So you don't have to go from edge of bed to cartwheeling over to the chair. There's a lot that can be done right there at the bedside. Okay, we're not going to go anywhere. Let me get a second person and let's just try to stand from the bed. Well, how much help should I give them? You just give them as much help as you are physically comfortable giving and you see what the patient is able to do. Oh, wow, they got three quarters of the way up and then they sat down. 
I feel comfortable giving a little bit more help. Why don't we try that again? I'm going to help them a little bit more. Let's see if they stand up. Okay, they stood up. Let's assess their response to that, see how they look. Let's try to stand for a few seconds. Okay, great. They're actually bearing some weight here. Well, now, right, falls and mobility are always in constant tension. You don't want to walk this patient away from the bedside. Now we have a critically ill patient who fell face first and self-extubated. That's not going to look good. You don't have to do that. Why don't you take some sidestep? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you haven't, right? No, I haven't. We've actually, yeah. as, a, as a general kind of rule, we have almost 10,000 data points of MICU therapy, and there's only been one extubation during therapy. So, and that person didn't have to be reintubated. So the customer's always right. And let the customer decide. <laughs> you don't have to get into that fear zone. You can just try to sidestep up the side of the bed. And maybe you, the patient shows you, my goodness, they're stepping really well. Let's sit down. I think getting to a chair is completely feasible. Or maybe they don't, you know, you're really helping them, the two of you, and their knees are buckling a little bit, and you just know they can't step. That's fine. The bed's right behind. Now you can sit down right there at the bed, reassess, make sure cognition's good, physiology's good, they've recovered. Okay, let's just try again. And you know what? This time we're not going to step. Why don't we just stand? We're just going to stand right there. And so really the way that I look at it is you're judiciously going up every step of the mobility staircase. And at every step, you're figuring out how are they doing on this step and are they ready for the next one? And if they're not ready for the next one in that moment, for whatever reason, you just stay in that step or that level and you work within that level. And if that level in that moment is standing at the bedside with two people assisting, that's fine. That doesn't mean that that was a failure or that you should stop. Why don't you do three sit to stands? Why don't you do four? Why don't you do 10? You know, just repeat that level. That's just like any other exercise, right? You know, if you can't deadlift 225 pounds, you don't just say, well, then that's it for today. I guess I'll just come back and try tomorrow. Well, you figure out that you can deadlift 50. You figure out that you can do 30 pounds four times and you do multiple sets of that. You build your strength in that level or in that task and try to progress your way forward. So I, I don't know if that's getting at kind of what you're thinking about from like a, you know, in the moment perspective for a nurse or for someone who's just starting their journey. These ICU revolutionists that are working so hard to make these strides, but sometimes feel frustrated that they don't have all of their mechanically ventilated patients up walking a thousand feet before they are extubated. I think it's important to understand and appreciate the value of those little steps because that is making a huge difference to their outcomes. Sitting up, engaging the diaphragm helps them get extubated. Being able to sit to stand helps them be ready to walk. Anything a nurse or, or any professional does to work towards that has greatly contributed to saving a life and preserving a life worth living. So thank you so much for everything you guys bring to the table. Anything else you would add to this conversation that you would want the IC community to know? It's open mic. I think just keep it in mind that oops, go ahead, you don't want to give Kenny and you don't want to give Kenny and I an open mic. You don't, you don't know how many hours of podcast material you might end up with here, but I'll, I'll let Kenny go first there. Yeah, I think it's easy to go off the rails with Kyle here. So I'll try to be brief. I think keep it in mind that, you know, these people, when they survive the ICU, they have a very, very long road. And what you're doing is trying to set them up for as much success down the road. And I think it's what Dr. Awashna, who asked the question, are, are we creating survivors or victims of critical illness? So I think 
when you keep that that thousand foot view of what am I doing today that's going to help or harm this person in two weeks, in two months, in two years is, is a very important thing to be conscious of because, you know, we know that these people are people who suffer when they leave the ICU, when they leave the hospital, when they re-enter the community. If they do re-enter the community, a lot of times they uh, unfortunately end up being facility dependent. They have very little specialized follow-up. There's what, like, you know, probably less than 20 post-ICU clinics. I don't know if that's changed since you're in Evan's presentation a few years ago, Kyle, but these are people that don't have anywhere to go. And oftentimes, even if they had somewhere to go, they might not have the physical, mental, financial capability to get there. And so the onus is on us as critical care clinicians and, and people in hospitals to try to set these people up for as much success as possible at best and trying to minimize harm at worst because they have a, a very difficult road. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's well stated, Kenny. And I, I would highlight that. That's, those are very important things to think about. You know, I kind of think after my time in, in critical care over the past decade or so, and especially after COVID, you know, critical care is a, is a funny double-sided coin. There's a lot of amazing outcomes and saves and, and, and patient performance that just blows you away on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, it can't be undersold that this is still critical care. You know, you're, we're not, we're not playing t-ball here. Like it's, there is a lot of bad that does happen, could happen, and it's going to happen. And I kind of look at it from two perspectives, you know, for our rehabilitation professionals who are very used to trying to progress people to success, you're going to work with people who end up dying. You are going to end up working with people who are profoundly impaired and don't make a lot of progress. You're going to have streaks where you don't get a lot of good wins. And you're going to have streaks where you can do nothing wrong. And people just seem to really respond to your interventions. That's kind of the game we're playing. I think the flip side is, is for folks who have backgrounds in critical care is, is take that long game approach and try to mitigate what you can mitigate and understand where the patient came from, where they are cognitively, physically, and functionally. And what can we do to try to prevent any further downslide? and start to reverse that trend and start to try to make some progress or address those issues. And I think the last thing is, and is there is a lot that can be done, but not everything can be prevented. And that, that's, a lot of this is also predicated on what type of ICU you work in. There's folks that if you work in a super high acuity medical ICU with no surgery patients, you are going to see a lot of folks with a lot of comorbidities who may have physical functional impairment at baseline and you may be dealing with a death rate that is remarkably different than if you work in a straight surgery ICU, or if you work in a cardiothoracic ICU or a specialized ICU. And just know that, again, you can only do what you can do, but not all of this is preventable. And the only reason I bring that up is, you know, my medical ICU team and us, we hit a point where we struggled for a while because we got hit with a lot of bad outcomes. We were questioning, you know, well, we just need to get in there earlier, you know, and then we were getting in there early on 84% of our patients with mechanical ventilation got PT while they were in the medical ICU. 
and that was initiated on average within 33 hours of admission. Those were averages. So there was plenty of people I can tell you we got in there on hour 12. But still, there were some patients that weren't getting better, and I will never forget this gentleman. Day one, five out of five strength. We were working on standing. I thought he was going to be able to walk in a few days. Day two, struggling standing. Wasn't really sure what was going on with him. Day three, I think we saw him twice, still struggling with standing. Day four, three out of five strength examined. By day 14, he had zero out of five strength in the worst case of ICU-acquired weakness and critical illness neuromyopathy I've ever seen in my career. No one did anything wrong on that case. This guy was a RAS of minus one to zero the whole time. He was only CAM positive one or two days, actively mobilizing, actively working with rehabilitation. He won the reverse lottery. And so what I would say is it's going to be hard. There's going to be challenges, but do what you can do for those individual patients and for your population. And just know that at times not everyone will respond and, and that's okay. We can't have uh, a mindset that we're going to have a hundred percent survival rate and a hundred percent return to the community rate. But in the face of that, there's still a lot for all of us to do. And there's definitely a lot if you're a rehab professional that you can do regardless of where you're starting. And again, you know, if you're starting at a place where it's deep sedation and that's the norm and there's no therapist in your unit, hey, you know what? Getting a few patients awake and getting people to let you start assessing people, that's a win. You know, you're not going to jump to the awake and walking ICU or a high level ICU overnight. And, you know, Kenny on a different podcast can tell some stories of how he as a singular PT drowning in COVID, helping prone and supinate people all day because of staffing concerns, was able to start moving the needle on actually doing some therapy and mobility in patients who are critically sick in an ICU that historically didn't do a lot of that. And that was in during a damn pandemic. So just stay the course, be judicious, think about it and do your best. I mean, I think that's that's all we can say. One of my favorite parts of doing this podcast and corresponding with all these people across the country and world is the honor of meeting ICU revolutionists. I'm speaking to an environment that I walked into. I didn't do the hard work of creating it from the ground up and combating all the incredible barriers there are. But the people that are, even during this COVID and staffing crisis that are so driven by compassion and passion that are doing the extra work to make these changes. Those are the people that I look up to that are my heroes. So I've had people reach out and say, oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. But in reality, I'm the one excited to talk to them. People like you can need that in the middle of all of that, you're still keeping that big perspective and trying to keep medicine evidence-based. And it is such an honor to speak to such seasoned physical therapists that are building the future of physical therapy and the ICU. And I hope, and I'm determined that your role will increasingly grow in the ICU, that your profession will be increasingly respected and acknowledged and utilized for every ICU patient. So thank you for building the future and thanks for coming on and sharing your expertise. I appreciate it. I think that's very kind. And you know that's very lofty praise that I don't know how deserved it is, but I will say thank you for me and, and for Kyle there. And we appreciate the work you do. You're a very fierce advocate for these kinds of things. And it's even more powerful coming from someone outside of the, the rehabilitation realm. You know, you give a, a platform not only to 
physical therapists and occupational therapists, speech therapists, physicians, but, you know, patients and survivors of critical illness. And that's very valuable for people who have experienced these kinds of things to have a platform to share their, their lived experience. And I think what you do is, is incredibly important and valuable. So we appreciate the opportunity. Well, you emboldened me. So everyone I talk to, every survivor, every clinician gives me more, more reason to be more vocal and bold. So I'm happy to be the hitman. Honored to be with you guys. Thanks so much. To schedule a consultation and connect on social media, as well as find supportive resources, including case studies, ebook, episode transcripts, and citations to research, please visit the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.